I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Kelly Drew, is a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks and the director of, for transformative research in metabolism, whose lab focuses on hibernation biology. Inspired by the hibernation talents of the Arctic ground squirrel, Kelly studies how its biology protects the brain as it goes in and out of hibernation. The work is documented by extensive publications and professional research journals, has potential practical applications in extending the protection of the brains of patients in medically induced comas. And further in the future, Kelly's work is relevant to the necessity of hibernation or suspended animation in astronauts traveling to Mars. So Kelly, welcome to Delving In. Well, thank you so much. So let's start by just hearing how you got interested in hibernation. It's not your average subject. <laughs> Well, that's a really good question. Um, kind of a nice story that I am from Alaska and I left for graduate school and a postdoc. So I was gone for about eight years and came back to Alaska really for family because my family was still here and I had a, had a new infant, baby daughter. And my husband and I decided to come back to Alaska and I expected to uh, work on you know similar things I had done. So my PhD is in neuropharmacology, and I had done a postdoc also in a neuropharmacology lab. And I came back to Alaska, and um, was introduced to hibernation by my uh, my mentor and later supervisor Brian Barnes. And he put this little animal. It's not even so small. They're uh, they they fill fill your your, your, you know, two hands, they, you know, you can cup them. They're about a kilogram. Um, and he put them, put this ground squirrel in my hand and it was so, so remarkable. I mean, it, uh, it's this, you know, living creature that, uh, was in this state of consciousness that I couldn't even comprehend. And it was so cold, it, you know, to touch, it was, uh, it felt like an ice cube nearly. And so initially, you know, one of the reasons I got interested in neuropharmacology was I was very interested in consciousness. And, uh, and this was a state of consciousness that was completely unique. So it was a it was easy, it easily captured my attention. And then to try to understand how the brain functioned at this, uh, in this state and this cold temperature was, uh, was quite fascinating to me. So just to clarify, uh, for my reading of your work, it sounds like the squirrel can, the temperature can get down to 26 degrees uh, below freezing. Of course, the blood it must have some kind of antifreeze properties or you know, has dissolved things in it, so it doesn't actually freeze, but it's that cold. Yeah, below freezing. And that is an area that is still very understudied. Brian Barnes was the one who discovered that supercooling in the Arctic ground squirrel. And what it appears is that they lack a nucleating factor. But um, beyond that, it's really not well understood. And so that's a whole nother realm of these animals physiology that deserves a lot of attention because it could have remarkable, um, you know, uh, translational potential for organ preservation for for organ donation, I assume, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, right. So you know, so if you can make them so cold, then they're you know they they are easier to preserve and then available for transplants. Right. And and when you say consciousness, I mean that's that's we could get lost on that topic, but um, maybe another way to put it is that the brain is still functioning; it's still uh, protecting the organism. So. In, in Alaska, where the, this Arctic squirrel lives, of course, it gets much, much colder than 26 degrees. So the brain must be monitoring the ambient temperature and keeping it there, keep, keeping its body temperature at 26 degrees and not any colder. Yeah, it's really remarkable that uh, so many of the autonomic nervous system functions persist. They have a, a changing in their set point, certainly for temperature, uh, for uh, you know, the baroreflex that regulates uh, blood pressure, um, all these things kind of reset, but they continue to function. So if you look at their cortical EEG, so brain activity, brain waves, they look like they're dead, 
they look like they're in a coma or dead. They're flat. Uh, no cortical EEG. And uh, yet they still will respond to a toe pinch. If you pinch their back toe while they're hibernating, they will withdraw the foot. And uh, handling the animal will induce arousal. So they still respond to their environment. And so that's really one of the fascinating things is how the brain continues to function. At that, those cold temperatures, people have not detected action potentials. So it doesn't mean that they don't exist, but nobody's found them. And so another aspect that's very interesting to me is how the brain communicates, how neurons communicate without an action potential. And it, it, um, and it highlights an interesting area that uh, we talk about as uh, metabolic signaling. So metabolic or metabolites can act as signaling molecules. And that's what we think is largely playing a role is, uh, is just the metabolism, basic metabolism. And there's spillover of these metabolic uh, substrates like adenosine and uh, glutamate and that we think that these are playing a role in how the brain continues to function. But it's really a very understudied area. There's lots more to be discovered. Yeah, I think it's, it's safe to say that you're one of the pioneers in this topic, that uh, hibernation, I think we've known about hibernation forever, but really trying to understand it scientifically is a new thing. And, and it's a challenge because these are what we call non-model species, non-model organisms. So there's so many new powerful genetic tools for rats and mice that don't exist for these non-model organisms. So they're much more difficult to, uh, to study and to really identify the very cellular mechanisms. And so that is part of the challenge. Um, but the techniques and are evolving. Um, so I think that that's going to, I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be significant breakthroughs. And, you know, I think that looking at these, I guess it's considered comparative physiology, looking at animals that live outside the, the box that is normally studied, I think has tremendous potential for really novel insights. But sometimes it's a struggle to convince mainstream science that these these models are worthy of the extra challenge and the slower progress that you get um, than you are able to achieve with these model organisms like rats and mice. Right. So you mentioned about rats and mice, which, of course, are, are classic lab animals, which is why there's so much is known about them. And they're the analog for humans and testing, early testing of drugs and things like that. On the other hand, it's, it sounds to me that in order to see if you can induce hibernation in an animal that doesn't normally hibernate, you look for something that's close to the ground score, which is a rodent, right? So then you can use these model, the model organisms to study what you want to study. Yeah, and that's, that's, very, that's very true. But with one caveat to be aware of is that mice do show, show what's called torpor. So if you withhold food from a mouse, they will often, most strains of mice will go into what's called fasting-induced torpor. And some of the characteristics are very similar to hibernation, just not as pronounced. And there's been some breakthroughs in identifying the cell groups in the hypothalamus that are necessary and regulate uh, this onset of fasting-induced torpor in mice, which is really very important. Is, and so when we test for inducing hibernation in a non-hibernating species, we always use rats because they don't show it naturally. But um, And so what they found in mice is really very important, uh, and it has spurred more interest in the, in the field of this metabolic suppression. You know, the, since they have used these uh, molecular uh, genetic tools, how to translate that is more difficult uh, than doing some basic pharmacology, but hopefully it will identify uh, uh, targets that can be um, manipulated with uh, pharmacologic tools 
And so, so that is exciting. Mice don't get as cold. They will come down to about room temperature. Um, so they don't tolerate as cold. They don't suppress metabolism to the same degree. And they only stay cold for generally about a day, 24 hours. But, um, you know, and so the comparison is that a ground squirrel will hibernate for about eight months. The Arctic ground squirrel will hibernate for about eight months. It doesn't eat um, or drink for about eight months. Or, or, or urinate or defecate, right? It, no, it doesn't, no elimination either. It, it'll, so what it does is it does, is um, they have these little periodic, we call them inner bout arousals. So every two to three weeks in the Arctic ground squirrel, um, they'll spontaneously rewarm. And during that time, they will urinate a little bit. They don't defecate. Um, they don't eat and they don't drink. So anyway, we're, there's lots to be, you know, a lot of questions about why they do this apparently is necessary because it requires a significant amount of energy. Um, and lots of reasons why they do it. One of them might be to urinate. One of them might be to sleep because they don't actually sleep when they're hibernating. It's a it's an extension of sleep, but it doesn't. Some people argue that it doesn't perform the the restorative sleep, so they're actually sleep deprived. That's a that's a controversial theory. Um, but uh, so the, what they do is just more extreme, and um, and of course they get much colder because they'll go down. It, depending on the ambient temperature, if the in their burrows when they're hibernating in Alaska, they the burrow temperature can get as cold as minus 16 centigrade or minus 20 around in that area and that's at those ambient temperatures is where they will super cool and their core body temperature will go down to about a couple of degrees below freezing so um so it's just more extreme so is the arctic ground squirrel the champion of hibernators i think they are <laughs> <laughs> i would say yes um because of those extremes the length of time and and the cold, the coldness and the and the reduction of metabolism, all, all is at the most extreme possible. It sounds like right, yeah. Right. So what what are the range of animals that hibernate, and how close? Uh, are, I, I think the lemur is the closest to a human. I think there are there's many many species that hibernate. Uh, of mammals, certainly hamsters are well recognized as good hibernators, and they are true hibernators. You, they are what we call facultative hibernators, which means that they can be induced into the hibernating. In, so there's always a pre-hibernation period where the animals need to prepare to hibernate, and there's a lot of physiologic remodeling that goes on. And with hamsters, that can be induced by putting them on short days, so so longer dark hours than light hours. And the, the thing that's fundamental to hibernation is that you have a gonadal regression. So hibernation is very much linked to energy conservation and reproduction. So they're, they go hand in hand. And so with the hamster, you take away the light and they'll, their gonads will regress and they'll begin to hibernate. Then we have the Arctic ground squirrel. They're considered to be a circannual hibernator. There's some sort of endogenous rhythm that uh, is, uh, we don't understand what drives it, what regulates it, but it's a 12-month a, a rhythm. And so it goes with the annual cycle. And regardless of the day length or the availability of food, they will hibernate. And then we have the bear. So black bears and brown bears, black bears and grizzly bears, um, are also hibernators. And they are a very interesting model because we like to call them human-sized hibernators. And they're so interesting because they don't get as cold as a ground squirrel or even as a hamster. They stay within the range that humans tolerate well. So down to about no colder than 30 centigrade. I apologize, I don't convert to Fahrenheit very quickly. But anyway, they 
suppress their metabolism to 25%, the bears, at least the black bears do. Those have been studied here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And so they're also a very interesting model um, because they, their hibernation characteristics are very similar to what a human might be able to do. And it's really the, the bear model, I think, has shaped what we think a human might be able to do, for example, for space travel. And that is that they don't get so cold. And more importantly is that they sort of can uh, cycle through the, the metabolic suppression cooled state and then back up into a warmer state. And that from that warmer state is where they could be quickly um, aroused if, they're, if they were needed if it was important, you know, to now wake up and do some work. So the bear is also a very interesting model. But those are the kind of the three extreme, you know, well, the from the hamster to the bear are the two extremes uh, in terms of uh, small short-term hibernation to the human-like hibernation. And then the ground squirrel represents the extreme physiology of adaptation where they can get really cold Remar remarkable metabolic suppression. This is a bit of a digression and not exactly related to what you do, but I read a long time ago about the Arctic frog. It's not an endotherm. It doesn't normally keep body temperature. And yet it seems to be able to like freeze pretty much solid <laughs> over the winter. Yeah, but they are also remarkable that they can freeze solid and rewarm. And so what they do is they redistribute glucose. They make a lot of glucose and pack their cells with glucose and that acts as an antifreeze. So the cells don't actually freeze on the inside um, and that preserves the cell structure function that remarkably they can thaw out and hop around again. So that's also very different than the ground squirrel that doesn't freeze. Um, they uh, they somehow resist freezing and they certainly don't get as cold as the frog. But yeah, that's another remarkable adaptation. Yeah. How, how does it keep its uh, cell membranes from bursting? Yeah, mostly that's it is the, with the glucose and redistribution of water. So they kind of dehydrate. And as far as we can tell, the ground squirrels also redistribute water. Their cells shrink. We don't know for sure that's necessarily water redistribution, but um, but that we think contributes to it. Could we uh, go back a little bit to talking about the difference between hibernation and sleep? Because that, that's a really fascinating thing. Because intuitively, you would think, well, hibernation is just the deepest kind of sleep, but but no, it's it's it has a different qualities to it. So how is it the same, and how is it different? So animals enter hibernation through sleep. They have to be showing. They have to go through slow wave sleep to enter hibernation. And what we think is the lowering of body temperature has a plays a role in suppressing the amplitude of the EEG down to where it becomes isoelectric or just a flat line. So this question about um, sleep is also again answered through the bear research it's because they don't get so cold. So we actually have a project ongoing now here at University of Alaska um, studying the EEG of the bear throughout extended periods of hibernation um, to ask the question, are they actually sleeping? And then the, the next question is, well, how, if they are sleeping, how do they maintain that sleep drive to be able to use sleep as a metabolic suppressor and save energy through sleep? But, um, and so if you, even with a ground squirrel, if you disturb it, and so that it cannot sleep, it will not hibernate. So they have to sleep. And that's what we think is that there's a connection between body temperature regulation and sleep that drives this feed forward mechanism that as they sleep, body temperature cools and that induces this torpor-like state. And it even brings to the, the forefront the question of what is sleep and certainly not uh, an accepted theory but one of my favorite theories is that sleep 
is also a form of metabolic suppression and that it is potentially secondary to lowered body temperature and lowered metabolism. So we sleep better in cold ambient temperature. Our body temperature does decrease some during sleep. And, um, and so it's interesting to speculate that sleep is secondary to energy conservation. And energy conservation begins with turning down the thermostat. And one of the theories about, at least for some people who have insomnia, is that they're not able to lower their body temperature. Exactly. So maybe we eventually we could have a drug that would do that and it would be the best possible sleeping pill. I, I believe so. And well, and so this is all relevant to the mechanism that we're most focused on is uh, regulated by adenosine. And adenosine is such an interesting molecule. It's proposed as the original, evolutionarily original signaling molecule. Adenosine is the backbone of ATP. So when you lose your high energy phosphates, you, you generate adenosine. And adenosine is known to be the homeostatic sleep drive. So this was discovered in cats. And so cats like to take cat naps. And when they measured the adenosine in the brain of cats that were deprived of their naps, adenosine accumulates. And as soon as they're allowed to sleep, adenosine dissipates. And so adenosine is well recognized as the driver of what is called homeostatic sleep drive. And adenosine also is fundamental to the setting of the thermostat in the brain. So it's hand-in-hand, hand, different cell groups within the hypothalamus and other areas in the brain, but um, very much related. And so we think that this adenosine molecule, which is uh, also fundamental to energy, uh, the currency um, is related to this, you know, that that's what signals the transition into these states. And there's something about the circannual rhythm, this annual rhythm that changes this um, tone of adenosine drive so that in, in the winter season, we also tend to have lower metabolism and increased sleep drive. So I, there is, there is evidence in humans that we also show a seasonal rhythm that is very exacerbated in the ground squirrel. So you were able to manipulate the adenosine levels in humans, or at least, no, I shouldn't say that, in, in your lab animals, uh, to induce hibernation. And something else that you discovered, I think, is that uh, adenosine's effect on the brain is very different than what it does in the body, and that you found a way to differentiate between the two. Right. So that's what the challenge is in, in um, developing a pharmaceutical that can that can work on this mechanism is that adenosine is very ubiquitous. There's adenosine is everywhere. Adenosine receptors are everywhere in the body. On the one hand, it makes it very interesting as a modulator of hibernation because there's so many systems involved with hibernation. On the other hand, it's very difficult to target what we want just for for human hibernation. So what we want to target for humor, human hibernation are the adenosine receptors in the brain. And we want to be able to do that in a accessible way. So the, uh, the, the easiest way, um, I shouldn't say uh, the most accessible, but the most specific way is to inject the adenosine drugs, the adenosine agonists directly into the brain. And that works really well because you only, you know, are able to manipulate this, these adenosine receptors that are in the brain that turn down the thermostat and promote sleep. But when you try to um, give the drug systemically by, uh, you know, IV injection or um, just a systemic um, administration, then you get lots of side effects that are not so well tolerated by humans such as low blood pressure, which is really interesting because it mimics what we see in hibernation, but humans are not well adapted to having very low blood pressure, whereas ground squirrels are. They're better adapted to that. 
And so that's really the challenge is that these animals that have evolved to, to benefit from this extreme metabolic suppression have also evolved to, for their, their energy demanding tissues like heart and brain to tolerate these very low levels of blood flow. So the challenge of hibernation is to match blood flow with the demand of the tissue. And that's a tricky thing to do, but the ground squirrels have given to have evolved their brain and heart to be a little bit more tolerant if there's a lack of perfect match between blood flow and demand. And humans have not, don't have that benefit. So it's a, it's a significant challenge to maintain optimal perfusion of these energy demanding tissues um, and yet still achieve some metabolic suppression. So that's really what we're looking at now uh, and hope that we can achieve. We, we don't expect to be able to get the same degree of metabolic suppression as the ground squirrels have, but you know, you, know, you gotta start somewhere. And, and part of it is being able to monitor the perfusion of the brain, the very vulnerable organ, and make sure that it's meeting, it's getting the blood flow that it needs throughout the whole process. Mm -hmm. and, and then another obstacle is uh, shivering, that there's an, a, a natural, natural response to body temperature cooling off, to shiver, to get it back up, and that has to be suppressed, but it has to be suppressed in a way that's not dangerous. Right, and, and so these, these adenosine drugs completely obliterate shivering. They turn down the thermostat so effectively that the body does not fight being cold. And so it really transfers the temperature control from the, the body to the clinician very effectively. So that one, that one we definitely mastered. Um, and so this temperature control is really easy to achieve. And the question is then, you know, well, how do you manage these other potential side effects like hypotension? But yeah, it really ob obliterates shivering and so that you can pretty much just dial in the temperature of the animal that you that you desire. And, and you can warm them up at whatever pace you want um, by we use external surface temperature to regulate body temperature when we induce this hibernation like state in rats. So getting back to the differences between sleep and hibernation, one thing that I found really fascinating to read about is that you know, sleep has a kind of restorative function uh, in the brain, which hibernation maybe doesn't do. And that's, I guess, the speculation that that's maybe why some animals come in and out of hibernation. Uh, but the other part that was really fascinating is that Arctic squirrels do not seem to experience any kind of muscle atrophy that a human would if, if a human was made to sleep for months and months and months that we would lose tremendous muscle mass and somehow they're able to preserve everything that's right i mean so much so that that when they wake up they even remember what they need to do that's right and they're ready to mate almost immediately too <laughs> right now that's a really exciting aspect of hibernation that we're just now beginning to put a little bit more energy into so we have you know the interesting metabolic suppression but then their recovery from that, and this is true both in ground squirrels and bears and hamsters, uh, is that the, the rewarming process is what we think carries with it what we call enhanced anabolic sensitivity. So that's exactly what happens is that uh, what, well, what the evidence that we've seen um, both in ground squirrels and bears is that they, for example, with muscle, when they're not eating, they actually break down some muscle to generate glucose uh, when they're hibernating. But then when they rewarm, they, um, the genes necessary for rebuilding uh, and, the, and the proteins necessary for rebuilding um, muscle are ready to be translated as soon as they rewarm. So they kind of accumulate and then they rewarm and everything just kicks into high gear and they regenerate. In whatever way, we don't know for sure whether they're uh, 
for example, in the brain, if they're making new neurons or in the muscle, if they're just building protein. Um, and those are some things that we're looking at exactly what they're doing in terms of regenerative processes and also, of course, what's regulating those regenerative processes. But that is really a very exciting area that um, that needs more attention. And so some of the potential mechanisms are uh, related to these um, things called cold shock proteins. Uh, there's a RBM3 is a protein transcription factor that is uh, of interest and has been shown to be induced by lowering body temperature and that promotes synaptic reorganization and synaptic uh, synaptogenesis. Um, and so that is one of the mechanisms that might play a role. And those are also very um, possible therapeutic targets. So I think that is very interesting, is the regenerative process. This is very similar to regenerative process of sleep and comes back to the lowering of body temperature and then rewarming. And how much of that is really driving these regenerative processes? So I have another question, and that's about uh, fat storage. I would think the squirrel, Arctic ground squirrel, it gets so cold, it probably uses almost no energy at all during its hibernation. Whereas the black bear is at a much higher temperature, and they, they need to really, I think, store up fat before they, the winter in order to make it through. Would humans have to do that too? Or would we have to bulk up somehow <laughs> you know, to have enough fat storage? I don't know why not. Yeah, you know, and so in terms of astronauts, we've always, I've always been one of the proponents that, you know, short, uh, kind of uh, heavyset women would mm -hmm. be best, <laughs> you know, because it's easy to put on fat and you don't use a lot of energy. But um, no, I mean, we would think so. And, and that's another really remarkable feat of the hibernating species is what we call metabolic flexibility to be able to switch from fat to uh, carbohydrate metabolism very quickly and easily. And so that's exactly what they do in the winter is they switch to fat metabolism. And they they do need a little bit of glucose and that's why they will potentially break down protein. But um, for the most part, they rely on fats. And um, they're really very good at it. Uh, and that's what they live on is uh, fat throughout the winter. And um, and they do, they, they, the ground squirrel can double their size. So, and same with the bear. The bear has the advantage of, uh, they don't really necessarily need more energy to stay warm. We think that the reason they don't get so cold is because they have so much body mass and that really heavy fur. So we think that they just are better insulated. Um, and so that's why they, one of the reasons why they don't get so cold is a ground squirrel. But yeah, they both uh, switch from carbohydrates to fats very effectively, and then switch back uh, in the in the spring. And even in the ground squirrels, this is they appear to switch from fats to glucose during that short little interbout arousal. Uh, there's some controversy in what energy, what substrates they're using to generate that energy to rewarm. Some people, some evidence suggests they continue to use fats, and some suggest they switch to glucose. So I wonder what the uh short, stocky female astronauts, would it be helpful if they also uh, prefer the keto diet? Absolutely. And so it's so interesting with people, you know, because the keto diet also enhances the this metabolic flexibility and your ability to burn fats. And so people that uh, like to maintain themselves on a keto diet, if they do go off of it and eat carbohydrates, they can very more quickly switch to burning fats again when they go back on it than somebody who doesn't practice a ketogenic diet. It's very, very relevant. So t tell us more about the medical, possible medical uses. We've talked a little bit about uh, preserving of organs, I guess some people that have just died but uh, are not fully cold yet. But it, if you could get them cold right away, of course, that would preserve the organs. Uh, but then I think there's other uses too. Uh, if people have experienced uh, terrible medical trauma, uh, it extends the time, the uh, survival time, uh, before they they can be repaired. Yeah. So there's a couple of uh, perspectives there. One is just to in, uh, increase the the golden hour, um, the time 
to get somebody to medical care. One example there would be right now for for strokes, for large vessel strokes, ischemic strokes, um, it's remarkable uh, efficacy of, um, they call it thrombectomy, where they just go in and pull the clot out of the vessel. Um, but you, that has to happen soon. Um, currently, it's within five hours, or otherwise the vessel deteriorates enough that when you pull that clot out, you're going to cause bleeding and you're not you're going to do more harm than good so you really have to rush to the hospital find a uh, find a hospital that is um, prepared for this kind of procedure and and you'll recover quickly but if you can't get to the hospital so fast um, then that option is not available and so cooling it has been proposed as a way to extend that time um, so that it you know if you're stuck somewhere and you can't get to the hospital so quickly, you, you can still benefit from that treatment. Uh, and then there's another uh, possibility to just protect the brain from this. So what happens is, for example, cardiac arrest. Many people think that cardiac arrest, people die from the heart cardiac issues, but really people die from brain injury. So again, the brain is a very metabolic, uh, energy demanding organ. And so when you stop the heart, even for five minutes, the brain suffers significantly. And even once the start gets heart gets started again, the blood flows, and that creates what's called reperfusion injury to the brain. And then we typically, people die over days from brain injury. So even people that are resuscitated and gotten, you know, to the hospital, they don't, they, they die in the hospital. In other words, the brain can't tolerate being resupplied with blood that quickly. Right, right. So it's both the lack of blood and the re and the um, resupply of blood that causes this web of um, inflammation and uh, cellular degradation that then ultimately leads to death from brain injury. And so one way to suppress all of those horrible things that happen is to cool the brain. And so that's used routinely for cardiac arrest. So people, standard of care is to cool people for 24 hours post-cardiac arrest. It was known as therapeutic hypothermia. It's evolved now to be called targeted temperature management. And there's considerable concern or, or uh, controversy in the field now because of a recent clinical trial that showed that cooling was no more effective than, than just managing fever. So all of this boils down to the challenge of effectively cooling somebody, and so much focus has been put on cooling rather than suppressing metabolism. And so when you try to cool a human body, it fights it, and it creates not only shivering, but a cold defense response that includes you know, many stress mediators and so from my perspective, cooling is extremely therapeutic. There's many anecdotal stories of people having cardiac arrests in cold weather and their body cooling and they go through a near death or, you know, death experience and are brought back to life. Uh, and cooling is clearly protect, clearly protects the brain during this period. But being able to cool effectively without this cold um, stress response, I think, is the key to really using it clinically. And so that is another big area uh, for potential application of what we learn about hibernation. Have you heard any, uh, stories uh, of people who drowned who were in very, very cold water? And, and, and I don't know, I think anyone understands why some people go into this response and some don't, but, but some people go into almost a hibernation state, of course, they can't breathe underwater, but with very little brain damage after like 40 minutes. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's so many stories. There was a the physician in uh, Norway that uh, was basically dead under, under cold water uh, and came back and is neurologically intact. So those are, those are exactly the anecdotes that highlight the therapeutic value of cooling. And it just uh, happens, you know, 
part of it is the early cooling. So when you drown in cold water, you're actually potentially cold before your brain um, loses its uh, oxygen. And so early cooling is important, and that's been shown with animal studies and with uh, human clinical trials. And so that also is another important application is to be able to cool earlier uh, and we could do that with a pharmaceutic that could be applied by EMS and could lower body temperature safely and effectively uh, during pre-hospital transport. So what they've seen so far with trying to cool pre-hospital is that it has not, uh, in some cases, been beneficial because of the methods they've used to try to cool. So it really comes down to the technology for inducing that cold state and, again, metabolic suppression metabolically suppressed state early, as soon as the brain uh, has um, lost its blood flow or oxygen. So can you foresee a time in the future where uh, every ambulance or at least every hospital has an ambulance with a cooling device in it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the cooling device, but the drug, the drug to facilitate the cooling and make it very easy for EMS to um, lower the body temperature to their whatever level they desire and uh, during transport. I think that's really the where we're going to see the biggest saving of lives. And functioning. Yes, right, and neurologic function. So it's not just the life. It's not just the mortality, but also the morbidity. So we want people to not only survive, but to come back and be intact. And that really, to me, is the most exciting part because these experiences for people you know, it's like you go through death and you come back and you come back sometimes with some perspectives that you didn't have before that experience. And I think that's really inspiring. Well, I think we have time for, for two more topics. Uh, one, I'd like to talk about space travel, which I know is a much more speculative uh, application of this, although it's not so speculative in a sense because NASA is asking for your help, right? And helping to figure this out. Um, you know, get going to Mars. I, I, I think going to Mars is a very exciting idea and preposterous at the same time. <laughs> you because know, the, the level of resource needed, the energy needed, the level of danger, I mean, it's, it's all that is over the top. And yet, you know, we're talking about it and it's pretty clear that hibernation would be necessary uh, if only to reduce the amount of supplies needed and the weight of those supplies. Yeah, and it's also fun to recognize that hibernation has other benefits such as you know just avoiding some of the um, conflict between people that are in these small spaceships for that confined for such a long time so it's you know it's like uh, very similar to extended sleep so that you know you're you're comfortable you're you're not anxious um, and uh, and then also of course the uh, the benefit of the, you know, preserving muscle um, and brain. And also very importantly, that cooling has been shown to protect damaging effects of cosmic radiation. Well, not, they haven't been cosmic. It's hard to reproduce on earth, but ionizing radiation. So that's really the most important part. And that's what NASA is most interested in is protecting astronauts from the ionizing radiation in space. Right. So, and there's two ways. One is that it seems to affect the tissues less when you're hibernating. And the other is that it's a, you can probably have a much smaller area of the ship that would be better shielded because the shielding, it takes a lot of weight also. Right. This all reminds me of an article uh, about hibernation in the, in the Atlantic, a very charming article from a couple of years ago. And the author was saying that he wishes he could hibernate just in order to check out and have a vacation, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you just sort of wonder, you know, if, let's say in the far future where hibernation is, is a routine thing for, for humans, that people who uh, want to live in a far north place but don't want to have to live through the winter, they can be just like the Arctic ground squirrel and just uh, be active during the summer and have a much, much longer lifespan as a result. Yeah, there's uh, no doubt that's why hibernation is so appealing for uh, research in Alaska. You know, here we are um, just a little less than a week away from winter solstice. And uh, I know I could hibernate if people would just leave me alone. <laughs> it's a very appealing time to spend, uh, spend the winter. And so, uh, no, I agree. And I, I've got colleagues in Tromso, Norway, 
that is actually above the Arctic Circle. And so I, um, we share this, uh, this winter season that uh, is really quite extreme when you're near the Arctic Circle. I've actually heard of Tromsø because uh, I'm a psychologist and I t did a training with a, a Norwegian psychiatrist named Tom Anderson talking about something called the reflecting team. And he said, you know, the reason why we're able to develop the reflecting team in Tromsø is because what else are you going to do, <laughs> you know, over the winter? <laughs> you know? Very true. It's really a magical place, though. I love that. I love Tromsø. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, so Fairbanks, where I live, is uh, um, below the Arctic Circle by uh, 100, 150 miles or something like that. Um, but Tromsø is well above the Arctic Circle. So, so that means what you get a, an hour of light per day or something like that of uh, sun. Well, you get dawn and dusk. So uh, yeah, when you're above the Arctic Circle, that dawn and dusk just is kind of a pink sky for many hours, or you know, for four hours or so. So uh, if you were trying to sell uh, the Alaskan winter, would you be able to do it, or you'd say no, no, no? It's it's the summer that's beautiful. The winter you just have to get through. Or is there a beauty? Is there beauty in the, in the desolation? The winter is wonderful if you don't have some, you know, work and so many tasks. The winter is a wonderful place to spend if you can just enjoy the outdoors and sleep late and go to bed early. <laughs> it's really a winter wonderland outside with the snow and the air sparkles and the snow sits on the trees and it's really quite beautiful. But uh, and, and of course, the summer is our manic season. So that's a lot of fun, too. So what's the usual temperature this time of year for you? Well, there's significant climate change. Uh, so it's, it's different. Uh, this year, it has rarely been below freeze, uh, not below freezing, but below zero Fahrenheit. Mm, wow. um, and yeah. And in the past, uh, you know, minus 40 was common. Um, and so it really has changed a lot. So you never know. It can come at any time, but uh, we definitely have a lot fewer cold days than we used to have. So in other words, if Jack London were alive today, he would not have written his some of those stories. I think not. Yeah. Next week, I guess we've got some temperatures predicted around minus 20, but that's, that would be the coldest we've seen it so far this year. And it's, I mean, it, it used to get minus 60. So it's changing for sure. Wow. Yeah, we didn't mention about polar bears. I'm assuming the polar bears don't hibernate because they're so well adapted to the cold. Well, they are. It's not really that they're so well adapted to the cold, but as far as I understand it, it's because their food is still available. So really, hibernation has evolved as energy conservation when resources are rare, and particularly food, food and water. But here in the Arctic, it's mostly food. So... Um, yeah, the polar bears living on the sea ice, they have continued access to food. Right, I see, I see. Okay, well, the last topic I, I wanted to ask you about was about what it's like to be a scientist. And uh, one of the videos I saw of you, it was really clear that you, I mean, you love what you do, you love science, and you, you have a kind of patience about the whole process. You're not in this to, be, to make the, you know, the next huge discovery, although, of course, you want to do that, but... Even without that, there's a kind of steady attention to a topic and just really getting deeply, deeply immersed in it and loving your Arctic ground squirrels, for instance, and you know, appreciating the uh, accumulation of knowledge and, and being part of this bigger process. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I mean, I think science is the, it's the, um, well, a lot of people don't appreciate how much opportunity there is for creativity in science. So it's the creative outlet for the for the nerds. You know, like, you know, I, I it is very, it's a creative outlet. And it's very fun. It's it, I can't imagine doing anything else. And especially finding something so remarkable um, that drives your passion um, to try to figure out how it's working. And it is extremely slow. But um, and you just have to persist. And so, I, yeah, I, and it's frustrating because, of course, you know, we have to get funding for it. And the funders often want progress to be faster than it comes. And you just kind of have to take it as it does come. And everything is a discovery. So, you know, if you know the answer to an experiment, there's no reason to do it. 
So you have to be able to, you know, make observations and do some manipulations and see what happens and interpret it and take the model to the next step and until you can really understand it. And uh, of course, it's uh, it can be frustrating because you know you can spend a lifetime on something and not take it to where it really is uh, attainable. And sometimes then nobody picks it up. But I hope with hibernation that will stimulate enough interest that it will continue for until we can figure it out and really apply so much of these uh, magical adaptations of hibernating animals to improve lives of humans. And of course, you've you've come kind of full circle in a sense because you started out as a as a neuropharmacologist, and so you know, this hibernation work is very relevant to that. Uh, there's a lot of overlap. Absolutely, and so it's uh, it is an area that is amenable to pharmacology, and uh, and so it's exciting to uh, try to identify druggable targets um, that novel therapeutics can be developed to promote uh, and harness some of these adaptations of these animals. Well, I just want to express appreciation for you and, and all of your fellow scientists, you know, for the work that you do. You know, I think the drug companies get a lot more publicity, but the basic science is being done in academic centers all over. Absolutely. No, that's true. And thank you so much for your interest and the opportunity to talk about, about hibernation. Well, you're quite welcome. So I, I, th I think we, we talked about just about everything except... Um, whether people get nauseous when they wake up from hibernation on a spaceship. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. I guess we don't really know that, but in, in all the movies, it's just this very traumatic transition and really wrenching. Right? Right. Yeah, well, the ground squirrels do well, um, and they shiver through it. They shiver through their rewarming, but people, we can provide sufficient external heat that people don't have to shiver. So uh, it's interesting. Okay, well, th thank you so much. Let me just reintroduce you at the end here. Uh, Kelly Drew, a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks and the Director for Transformative Research and Metabolism, whose lab focuses on hibernation biology. So thank you so much for coming out to Delving In. Thank you, Stuart. All right, take care. Okay, and happy solstice. You too. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.